know, it was really funny. I was uh, sitting over in, uh, in my chair over there, and I was thinking, what happened to my coffee? And it was like, right. Thank you, Lord. Needed that because <laughs> I was afraid I left it in kids' church. You know, that would have been bad because, well, this is where the Holy Spirit resides for me sometimes, just so that you know. Not always, but usually. Anyway, I'm so glad that you're all here. Happy Labor Day. Hey, by the way, um, this Labor Day, do you have the kind of Labor Day that I usually have, which um, typically involves um, laboring? <laughs> right? For whatever reason, it just seems like now's the time you do a project around the house. I don't know why that is. When Labor Day is supposed to be a day off from the labor. Anyway, so uh, in my house we have uh, two lists. Um, one is called the honey-do list, and the, and the other is called the two-by-four list. And the two-by-four list is the list that says, honey, get it done before I hit you on the head with a two-by-four. So... That list is getting longer, though. I'm not sure why. Anyway, hey, glad that you're here. Uh, those of you who are online, glad you're here, too. If this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. We're so glad that you decided to join uh, with us today. We are uh, studying the life of David in the series called After God's Heart. And here, uh, let me do a quick recap of where we are in the story. Saul and his son-in-law, David, um, are at odds with each other. And what started kind of as a family squabble has now become a, a full-blown hostility between the two of them. And if you, if you read closely, if you kind of read between the lines of, of what's going on in the, the book of 1 Samuel, where we've been for the last uh, couple of months, um, it has the potential of, of taking this fledgling nation, this fledgling monarchy, into all-out all civil war. I mean, it's, it's highly possible. Um, that's not an argument that I want to I make too strongly, but I think it's there. And there, if, if, depending on the actors involved, it, it could have degenerated into something that was even worse than it was. And so David makes this harrowing escape from, from Saul's household, and he is on the run. And so what I want to do today is I want to pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And uh, we're going to take this in turn. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, you might want to, want to turn to 1 Samuel. Otherwise, you can read it on the screen with me. So David went to Nob, uh, not Nob, it's Nob, just kind of like Job and not Job. You know the, 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 the uh, book of the Bible? Yeah, David went to Nob to um, Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Interesting. And David answered Ahimelech the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now, let's, let's take a look at this because there's some um, word choices here that I think is going to help us understand this passage just a little bit better. So, first of all, we have to understand that uh, Ahimelech is the priest. Um, so he's gone to church, essentially. David has sought out the church. This is not the first time he did this. Remember last week in 1 Samuel 19, he went to find Samuel, the prophet, and they all began prophesying with each other. They had a worship service. So David makes another escape, and he goes off to church. And so here, here he is with Ahimelech, the priest. And it says here that Ahimelech trembled. Now, 
that troubled me a little bit. I wanted to understand that a little bit more. It turns out that the word that's used here means um, trembled or shook or better, startled. Does that help you understand this a little bit more? So David shows up at church and startles Ahimelech. And I think what it does is underscores the covert nature of David's uh, travels and I also think the, the stealth that David had. Remember, he's quite a warrior at this point. And so he shows up and he, he, he startles old uh, Ahimelech. And, and then he kind of talks about this mission of the king. Now, he just escaped the king. So he might be lying a little bit. I'm not sure that he is because technically speaking, he's anointed as a king too, right? So he's kind of on his own mission. He didn't say which king, he just said, I'm the king. Okay, fair enough. Maybe that's a, a sneaky way of getting, it, getting out of it. But there's a little bit of intrigue here, and I think it's important because David is trying to decide who he can trust and whom, who he cannot trust. Does this make sense? If you were on the run, you would do the same thing. You would do the exact same thing that, that David's done here. Let's go on. Now then, what do you have on hand? This is David speaking. Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men um, have kept themselves from women. <clears throat> so he asks for some food because, again, he's on the run. Not sure when it was the last time he ate. Not sure when he's going to eat again. So he asks for some food. And the only thing available is this consecrated holy bread. And therefore, whoever consumes the bread has to be kosher. Now, kosher in, in Judaism um, uh, means purity. So they have to be pure themselves. Um, and essentially, that means ritually pure. They haven't, need to make sure that they haven't done anything that doesn't allow them to worship. And so the priest mentions this. Look, it's holy bread, and if you're going to eat holy bread, you've got to make sure that you yourself are ritually pure, or um, the word is that we often use is, is kosher, and you just thought it was about dill pickles, but it's not. It's about being blessed and ritually pure. So let's go on, verse 5. And David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy, how much more so today? Well, yeah, he's on the run. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now, David is responsible for his men, and so he verifies his holiness, their purity, and he takes the bread. Okay, now, this idea of bread of presence caught my attention. Oftentimes when I'm reading through a passage, and I highly re recommend this as a practice, is that I'll be reading through something until something grabs my attention. Um, especially if you're, if you're reading through long lists of things, say in the book of Numbers, <laughs> um, which is great if you have insomnia, by the way. You know, you can read through that and but if you're, if you're, if you're going to crack open the Bible, and, and I don't necessarily recommend the idea of just opening it and start, start reading, but if you want to do that, that's fine. God can use anything to speak to you. But do continue to read until something grabs your attention. 
And so as I was reading through the passage, for whatever reason, this idea of the bread of presence, maybe it's because we talk about the presence of God so much, and I just wanted to understand this. And so that's what my interest is here. And there's, I want to use this passage kind of as a jumping off point and, and, and try to do a little bit of a history lesson, because I think this is important. The bread of presence is first mentioned in Exodus chapter 25. Let me show you this. Make a table of acacia wood, overlay it with pure gold, put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. So the book of Exodus, this is Moses leading, and Moses is getting instructions on on creating, building uh, a tent, the tent of meeting. Uh, Sometimes we call it the tabernacle. So God's planning on traveling with his, his people, and so he has Moses make a great big tent, and, and whenever um, Israel camped out, his presence would come down and be in this tent, and it was supposed to be furnished a very specific way. And, and in those instructions, he talks about this gold table, which would be totally cool, wouldn't it? Gold table, and on it is this thing called the bread of presence, and that's all it says. Now, if you're just reading through the book of Exodus, and you bread, what's that? What's the bread of presence? Well, fortunately, in uh, later, some details to the priests are given about this bread itself. And so we have to look at Leviticus chapter 24. Let me put this one up here. Leviticus 24, beginning with verse 5. Take the finest flour and bake 12 loaves of bread. Arrange them in two stacks, six in each stack on the table of pure gold before the Lord. Okay, there's the reference to the table. The bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons, who are the priests, who are to eat it in the sanctuary area, in a holy place, because it is a most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. Okay? So you have a little more detail about this thing called the bread of presence. This is a very specified production. There are certain rituals related to this part of that element of worship. Now, as a quick aside, later on, we find out that there's one family. They're called the Koharites. And they are... um, or they became the uh, family responsible for the baking of bread. They are bakers. And uh, they have the original recipe, and they guard it like Colonel Sanders, right? I mean, it is an important thing, and this one family is known for this. They're the ones who bake that bread. And there's this elaborate process that developed over a period of time um, to replace the bread because it was always to be in front of the Lord, always, and so you'd have a whole group of priests who would come in, and as they were taking the, the old bread out, there was another group of priests who were putting the new bread on. Because they wanted to make sure, literally speaking, that the bread was in front of the Lord at all times. And so that was this long process, an elaborate process that involved a whole lot of, a lot of priests. And then afterwards they would go and they would divvy it up and they would eat the bread um, uh, together. 
So in short, what we have here is kind of a symbolic 12 loaves, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, laid out precisely on a golden table before God and changed for fresh bread every seven days. And you need to think of it in terms of provision um, always in the presence of God. The provision of the Lord is always in the presence of the Lord. And so he's, he's putting this out very symbolically in a very real way how there's bread available for his 12 tribes. Does this make sense? It's a very symbolic, very religious, and very exacting how they do this. And, and what's more, this is quite important. And I want to I mention this because I think um, it's easy to skip over. Because once again, we need to, to don the shorts and the Hawaiian shirt and grab the camera and the funky hat and be tourists. Because every time we open the text, that's what we are. And we want to make sure that we understand what's happening here. So in the ancient Near East at the time, all cultures um, offered food to their deities. This was a common practice. And there are still um, uh, remnants of literature that describe this. This happens in Egypt, it happened in Mesopotamia, it happened in Canaan, it happened all throughout the ancient Near East. And you have to remember that food is quite valuable. Because, you know, not... You know, not everybody was wealthy, and so when you offered food, it was a valuable resource, and so you would put it out just in case the deity showed up and was hungry, and that was a common practice. But Yahweh, Israel's God, was different. He doesn't need to eat, and yet there's food. So instead, Yahweh shares his food. In almost every case, whenever we see some type of ritual that involves um, sacrifice or animals or bread, or there's an element of God sharing it. It's bread here that the priests ate. They also ate from the sacrifices, from the meat. And of course, there's regular festivals on the calendar that involved feasts so that God would eat with his people. And, and as we've, we've talked about in the past, the idea of eating with someone is a very personal thing because of the proximity, because of the distance that you have. And this is something that God wants for his people to be in personal type of relationship with him. And so eating is just a natural place for that. Throughout, throughout the entire Old Testament, um, especially in the books of Moses, the first five books, we see these types of feasts and festivals where God is deliberately setting time aside so that his people could be with him and eat with him. And in this case, Yahweh is quite unique in the sense that he has clear expectations for his people that they worked out in the covenant at Mount Sinai. So way back in the book of Exodus, when all of that took place, it was very clear. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're agreeing to this. I'm agreeing to this. Here's what that looks like. And we call it Torah. We call it the law. And it's very clear what the expectations are on both parts. And, and what's more is that God is exceptionally generous with his people. In fact, if you get a chance, go look up, I think it's uh, Deuteronomy 24, if I remember correctly. There is this idea of blessings and cursings. 
that if you follow the Lord's covenant, if you, if you stay faithful to it, there is blessing. If you violate the covenant, there is curses. But what's so fascinating is there's twice as many blessings as there are curses. That's the generosity of God. And very often, what you'll find is that some of those things that we call curses just happen to be natural consequences um, for behaving in a way that's, that's contrary. Very much like when your kids have natural discipline. You know, things happen. Has this ever happened to your kids before? They do something, you tell them not to, they do it anyway, and lo and behold, they get hurt. And then they're surprised by that. But as a parent, you knew that was going to happen, right? There's a natural consequence for that sort of thing. And so oftentimes, these things that we call curses seem to be natural consequences for doing things that, that might not be God's idea. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're wondering, why on earth are we talking about the bread of presence? And the rest of you are getting hungry, right? Let's be honest. It's true. By the way, um, I did find one reference, uh, and I haven't had a chance to corroborate this yet, but the bread of presence is what uh, we call challah bread. Uh, you can get it at any bakery here in, in the Tulsa area, this uh, challah bread. And by the way, um, it makes really good French toast. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, that's a pro tip, kids. That's a freebie that you get. See what you learn when you come to church and when you watch online? You learn all these good things. So if you want great French toast, um, try challah bread, which may or may not be the bread of presence. I'm not sure. I haven't been able to find that for sure. But anyway, um, you can try it. And when you eat your French toast, you can say, oh, God is present here. <laughs> yes, he is. Okay. Anyway. But there's something else in this story that I want to I point out to you because Jesus actually references this very story in a particular way. Now, it appears in a couple places um, in, the, in the Gospels. I'm choosing the Gospel of Mark because Mark is the first Gospel and both Matthew and Luke borrow from Mark quite readily. And so let's go to the original one to Mark. It's in Mark chapter 2. Uh, you might want to turn there, but I will have it up on the screen for you. So Jesus refers to this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees, who apparently were traveling with these guys, I guess, said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now let's understand what's happening here. You have a group of religious leaders, Pharisees, who take the Torah, the law, very seriously. Probably to a fault. And what they're saying here is you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And if you are harvesting grain, you are working. Now, I think there's a big difference between plucking grain and harvesting grain. Um, but Pharisees were not interested in that type of argument. They're only interested in accusation at this point. Because plucking grain when you're hungry is not considered work and is lawful, but they chose to categorize it as harvesting, and so they can make their accusation here. And that was unlawful. Verse 25, Jesus answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? Now this is really quite humorous, because Jesus is picking a fight here. You have to understand this. If somebody looked at you and you were an expert in something like, well, haven't you read the text? Haven't you read the Bible? 
That's what he's saying here. He's like, have you not read this story before? I mean, this is inflammatory. He is poking the bear with sticks, and he's doing it deliberately. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Now, let me, let me pu- push pause just for one second here because you need to understand that. Did you see when we read the original story a man named Abathar? No, we read about a man named Ahimelech. Abathar was Ahimelech's son, Okay. And Ahimelech was the high priest. Abathar is mentioned later on in the story. And so there are some people who get all upset about this, that, oh my gosh, Jesus made a mistake. Or Mark made a mistake when he wrote it down. Who knows? The point is, is that the person shows up in in the story, and if you are out in the middle of the grain fields and you're having an argument, who's going to check the text at that point, right? Nobody's going to go pull out a Bible because they're few and far between if there's one at all in in a nearby village. So it kind of depends. So Ahimelech was the high priest, not Abathar the son. So uh, either Jesus made a slip of the tongue or Mark had a slip of the pen, some type of an error. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's okay. Um, But Jesus points out that the high priest did not object to what, what David was asking. The high priest who probably had more authority than these Pharisees did in the middle of a grain field out in the middle of Timbuktu. And he's like, have you not read this story? Look, there was a person in need here, and the high priest did not object to it. Didn't you read that story? Or more importantly, do you not understand what's happening within the story? So the high priest didn't object to David doing something very similar. And so he finishes with this teaching. And he takes them to school on this. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's the Lord's joy to share bread with the priests. So, might they too share the bread with someone else who might be in need? That would not be contrary to the heart of God. Now, it may not follow the strict letter of the law, but it certainly follows the heart that God is, seems to be illustrating with the bread of presence. And I think what happens for a lot of us, the, the, the problem that begins to arise is when we take the commands of God and we make them burdens on people. I think that's a problem. And, and, and when we do that, we miss the good that they actually offer. Because God doesn't do things arbitrarily. He doesn't command things arbitrarily. He doesn't give us guidelines arbitrarily. They're actually for our good, for our benefit, and for our prosperity. And one scholar put it this way, and I really like this. He said, you need to think of the commands of God like railings on a staircase. They may help you climb the stairs, but they certainly will help keep you from falling off the stairway. Which is a good thing if you've ever fallen downstairs, right? 
So think of the commands of God like that. The railing is there for your benefit to help you climb and to keep you from falling, falling off. And the purpose of the Torah, the purpose of the law, this, this covenant that God creates with his people, ultimately is to benefit humanity, not to control them. And that's where I think we, we make the mistake, is we think that it's about control and we forget that there might be some benefit to all of it. And I think that as a church, as individual disciples, one of the things we might try to do is to view everything through that lens. Is to look through that sort of peephole and say, okay, if God is saying this, there's probably some benefit to it. What's the benefit? Rather than God's trying to control me. It's not generally God's idea. God is for us. God is for us. He's for our benefit, for our well-being, for our prosperity. That doesn't sound like control to me. And so I, I, I wonder, I wonder as we sing the next song, and you're, you're worshiping. By the way, worship this morning already has been good, right? Oh, man. But as you're worshiping God, to think about God wants his people to worship. In fact, there's a, there's a, a, a proverb that God inhabits. He dwells in the praises of his people. And so when we worship, what's the benefit to that? It's not that we just get here and sing songs. That's not the point. The point is, is that God wants us to worship because there's a benefit to us for that. And here's the thing I want you to understand. I want you to hear this. If you don't hear anything else, here's the thing I, I want you to know when you walk out the door. Okay, are you ready? You might want to write this one down. No one can worship for you. You have to do that on your own. And so when we gather together in a celebration, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not, pointing anything out. I'm just encouraging you. When we gather together, we are gathered together in worship to celebrate the things that God has done, and no one can do that for you. You have to do that on your own. Now, don't get me wrong. You might get some energy from the people around you, because there's some people who have lots of energy when they worship, and I love that, and I think that's, that's uh, real helpful to the rest of the, of the congregation. You may get some energy from them, but your worship is your own and it is between you and God. You just get to do it with a whole lot of other people. And we're going to talk more about this as we go along. But nobody can do that for you. And my hope is that when you, when you gather together to worship and when you begin to, to look at God's word and to take it seriously, and you see the things that he's commanded of his people, that you don't look at it as a way of him controlling you, but rather as, what's the benefit here? Really, what's the benefit? Why would God want that? Why would God choose that? That's a great thing to ask him about. He's not afraid of that question. God is not the type of authoritarian who stands there and says, well, I told you this, you just need to do it. I've heard preachers say that before. I don't know what it is that they're selling, but that doesn't sound like the God I know. The God I know says, oh, I'm glad you asked. Let's talk about that. And I want that for you. 
And so let's start with this notion of worship. We are called to worship. We gather here for worship. But no one can do it for you. You get to do it yourself. So I just invite you as we're, as we're singing this next song that you think in terms of how is this going to benefit me? Why would God ask me to do this? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for illustrations like bread because we understand it. We like it. And so it's easy to um, get a sense of what you have in mind. Simple illustrations that all of us can understand. And Lord, as we as we sing, as we worship, would you speak to us? Would you show us what, what it is that you're, you're calling us to, what you're calling us for, and to help us see our benefit in that because you are for us. There are things that you want to do, not just through us, but inside of us. And I, I hope that we all become so filled with your spirit that it, it just can't help but spill out onto the people around us. Because I think that's what you had in mind when you talked about the kingdom. Lord, you've already been present in this room. You still are present and you're speaking to us. And I pray that you would continue, just continue to be who you are, to be present, that we can experience you in new ways. And churches, um, as we're worshiping, um, I recognize that there are things going on that I don't know about. There are things that are painful. There are things that are troubling. There are things that are stressful. And I would just invite you to let us pray for you. It's up to you. Um, I'm going to, I think I'm going to be over here on, on the left. And um, Gina's going to join me and she's going to be over here on the right. And we're just available to pray for you. Look, here's the thing. Um, the way the, the room is, is made, um, not a whole lot of options about where we can do pr prayer. And, and we don't have an altar in front, but the thing that I, uh, I want you to understand here is that if you need prayer, nobody's looking at you funny. Because people love you and they want you to be free. And my guess is, knowing some of the people sitting in this room, that if they see you marching up here, they're going to be praying for you too. And, and we need that. Prayer is for our benefit. Confession is for our benefit. Community is for our benefit. All of these things. God, I just pray that if you're speaking to hearts today, that no one would walk out of here without paying close attention to that. That no one would um, feel alone, but rather they would feel that you're with them because somebody here was with them. 
as we worship God. Don't just hear the words, hear what's going on in our hearts too. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Everybody said.